You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. All right, so today is part two in our three-part sermon series called Spiritual But Not Religious, and uh, or SBNR is the acronym we're using for short. I didn't make that up. That's a common thing today, SBNR. The movement is based on this popular claim that people make today or this response that people give today when they're asked, what is your religious affiliation? Many today will say, well, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Maybe some of you have said that before. I'm confident some of you have. We took a little poll last week and some of you raised those hands. I don't know if I've ever used it, but uh, I certainly thought it. Um, according to Gallup and Pew Research, approximately 20%, 20% of the U.S. population today self-identifies as spiritual but not religious, which is no small number, and it's increasing. So I think it's a really interesting topic for us to look at here, especially as uh, the kind of community we are. I dare say that most of us fit into this movement in some way, myself included, even if we don't really like to use that phrase, spiritual but not religious, for various reasons. But looking at the movement and discussing it can help us understand ourselves better and understand others better and perhaps even understand spirituality, religion, and faith better as well. At least that's my hope in my endeavor in this, in this three-part series. Last week, we looked at the historical roots of the movement and how it's, it's not a fad, it's not really new, and it's not as flippant or as meaningless as some would claim. There's something really meaningful about it, and it deserves to be taken seriously, and it deserves some critique, but uh, hey, you know what? What does it, right? <laughs> Last week, we talked about how the modern SBNR movement is born out of various contemporary concerns. First, it's born out of a deep moral sensibility. This idea that organized religion, namely Christianity, tends to be homophobic, sexist, patriarchal, often racist, often nationalist, and generally aligned with right-wing politics. There's also a common feeling today among many SBNRs that organized religion tends to be anti-science, anti-intellectual, anti-questions and doubts, anti-other religions, anti-other worldviews, tends to be elitist in that way, exclusivist, um, arrogant, and, and closed-minded. But what I find really interesting is that the SBNR movement is not just a protest against rigid religious systems, but it's also a protest against the reductive materialism that's so common today. This, this idea that says everything is just stuff, just cold, dead, mindless stuff. Nothing other than the physical is real and the physical is not endowed with any qualities or properties that science cannot detect, measure, or understand. That's reductive materialism. Everything is just stuff, therefore life is just a strange accident of nature along with consciousness. What we call our mind, what we call our consciousness, 
our dynamic inner life, our sense of awareness, our sense of subjectivity, it's probably not real or it's just an illusion created by our advanced brains. But even if it is real, it certainly tells us nothing about the intrinsic nature of reality or matter. Like life itself, mind and consciousness, we're told, is just a fascinating but ultimately meaningless accident of nature that tells us nothing about the fundamental nature of reality. That's reductive materialism. Very common. And it's often expressed in, obviously, it's pretty atheistic, right? Or it's completely atheistic. Uh, and I think the SBNR movement is as much a protest against that kind of reductive materialism as it is a protest against religious conservatism. It rejects both extremes as kind of arrogant, kind of myopic and narrow-minded and closed off, and as ideologies born out of fear, namely a fear of the unknown, fear of the mystery, and, and the, frankly, weirdness that is life and consciousness and being and existence. Let's admit it, it's, it's weird, right? Reductive materialism and religious conservatism kind of share a fear about all that weirdness and mystery and complexity. They want to domesticate it, they want to gain, gain a sense of mastery over it. They want to control it, do away with the mystery and the weirdness, so to speak, and assign everything into a set of predetermined categories they are comfortable with both religious conservatism and reductive materialism are about that. In this way, reductive materialism and religious fundamentalism are actually very similar. They share the same fears and the same desires. And ironically, ironically, this kind of atheistic reductive materialism can be just as dogmatic Reductive materialists can be just as dogmatic about their beliefs as religious conservatives. And I think SBNRs, I think SBNRs get that. They understand that and also understand that neither camp, neither extreme, probably has got the story right. So what is the right story, you may ask? <laughs> uh, damned if I know. No. <laughs> If reductive materialism and strict atheism isn't probably the right story, and religious fundamentalism most certainly is not the right story, then what is? Well, I don't know completely. But I think it has something to do with campfires. What do I mean by that? When I was in my teens, I used to love to go camping on my family's farm in upstate New York in the Finger Lake region. And I remember one time I was up there and I was sitting around a campfire and, with my Uncle Jack. And he explained to me, this is, he's a teenager. He explained to me that the wood burning in our campfire was really just the sun's energy being released that was stored in the wood over the course of many decades. He was talking, of course, about the process of photosynthesis, the process by which plants and some bacteria convert light energy into chemical energy. So in a very real way, the light and the heat of that campfire, of those flames, was the same light and heat of the sun simply transformed and stored in the wood 
even though the sun was millions of miles away, this was the sun's light and heat being released in our little campfire. I remember being amazed by that as an 18-year-old kid, staring into the fire and thinking about that. And even though that was like 30 years ago, that moment has stuck with me all these years because I think it's a great example of the deep and wondrous connection that exists between everything and everyone. And I think there's something not just physically and scientifically true about that, but metaphysically true, and perhaps even spiritually true about that. You see, it's not just the trees that are connected to the sun like this, but we are too. The sun's energy that is transformed into plants is then transformed into us as we eat the plants and as we eat other animals that eat the plants and so on and so forth. And it's not just the sun's energy that becomes our bodies and our minds, but the rain, the earth, the air we breathe becomes our bodies and our minds as well. We are literally stars. We are literally stars. We are made up of stardust. The elements in your body had to be created in the nuclear furnace of distant stars billions of years ago. And when those stars died and disintegrated and scattered their ashes across the cosmos, that coalesced into planets and rocks and eventually into us. We are made of stardust. We are literally stars. We are literally the rain. We are literally the oceans. We are the earth. We are the sky and the air. I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean that literally. That's just physics, chemistry, and biology, which is to say that we are connected to everything. Not just physically, I suspect, but consciously too. After all, our minds are part of our body, are they not? Minds are part of our bodies. In other words, the same way that the atoms and the molecules in my body and brain are also found in the trees and the rocks and, and the stars and other living things, so I suspect that my consciousness and my mind and your consciousness and your mind is also part of a cosmic consciousness and a cosmic mind that we approximate with words like God, ultimate reality, the source, the one, Brahman, etc. Pick your name, pick your, your metaphor, your vocabulary, whatever. If we are physically connected to all things, we are. If we are physically connected to all things, it only makes sense that we are also consciously connected to all things. I suspect that consciousness and mind are at least as fundamental to the nature of reality as space and time, matter and energy. In fact, I suspect that consciousness or mind is the true underlying nature of reality. I don't know that for sure. That's, what I, that's where I lean. And an increasing number of scientists and academics and a variety of different disciplines and fields lean that way too. And it's where a lot of SBNRs lean, as I have found out. This is where a lot of SBNRs are at. Because thinking along these lines of 
interconnectedness and mutuality is a big part of what it means to be spiritual but not religious. And keep in mind, these, these ideas have been around for millennia. We find them in ancient Greek philosophy and even in the church of the Middle Ages and what was then called Neoplatonism. We find these ideas, of course, also in native and in indigenous religions. And we'll talk more about that next week. But suffice to say for now, I think these ideas are what's animating the SBNR movement to a great degree. Because I think they constitute, they constitute what we might call a new meta-narrative. What's a meta-narrative? Well, it's, it's a grand overarching story that defines reality for us and that gives us meaning. And I think this meta-narrative of interconnectedness harmonizes science and spirituality in ways religious fundamentalism and reductive materialism could never do. And we need such a new meta-narrative. We need such a new grand story because as human beings, the other stories just don't really work. We need such stories, I think, to give us meaning. We're not meant to exist without meaning, us human beings. We are what some call meaning-making machines. Even if you're an atheist and a total materialist, you find you, you create meaning. You find meaning in your life. Maybe you find meaning in your work or in the love you have for your children and your family. Or maybe you find meaning in the meaningless itself by a way of saying life is meaningless. And that becomes a kind of meaning. Create your own. We are meaning-making machines. Whether you're atheist, theist, Buddhist, Christian, agnostic, it doesn't matter. Across time and culture, human beings make meaning out of the world. That's what we do. To give our lives grounding, to make sense, to build community, create culture. That's what we do. We need stories, in other words. We are story-making machines. This is a town built on making stories and understanding the need for story. Stories give us meaning, and what greater story is there than the one I am talking about today? The story of our connection to everything, everyone on a physical, metaphysical, conscious, spiritual level. There is no greater story than this. And I, I would say there's no greater meaning than that. We are connected to everything, everyone, and that has profound moral spiritual implications. It teaches us mutual care and concern. If we really grasp and believe in our connection to everything and everyone, then we're going to care. We're going to love. We're going to practice justice. We're going to be invested in other people, caring for them, seeking what's best for them, their well-being, their flourishing. Because by doing so, we are investing in our own well-being, and our own flourishing. This story teaches us ecological concern as well. Because if, in fact, we are connected to all living things in the environment itself, then by caring for all living things in the environment, we are actually caring for ourselves. It's all a part of us, and we are a part of it. 
and that carries profound moral and spiritual implications, philosophical, emotional implications as well. You name it, it's all there. But the story not only teaches us mutual care and concern, but I think it also gives us a deep sense of transcendence, meaning a sense that we are part of a grand cosmic story. We are a part of a profound and wondrous mystery called life and being and existence. And that's wonderful and that's meaningful all on its own. Which is to say that there is something spiritual, cosmic, and, and mystical about this story. Making no claims, hear me now, making no claims about you know, the nature of the divine or what being you're supposed to be believing. No, just the story itself invokes mystery and wonder and awe and a sense of transcendence. This story affirms a kind of horizontal transcendence rather than a vertical transcendence. What do I mean by that? Well, religion often teaches us only to believe in a kind of vertical transcendence, this idea that God or the divine is somewhere up there or beyond, and the, the point to existence is to you know get to heaven when we die, <laughs> to get up there and leave this crummy world behind, right? That's, that's vertical transcendence. I'm talking about a horizontal transcendence, this idea that God or the divine or ultimate reality is located right here, right now, in the fabric of our lives and in each other. And we can live with that kind of divine awareness and find that sense of depth, that sense of infinite depth to life and being here and now. And that, that calls us to commit invest ourselves in this life in this world and find joy and meaning in it and die here and now in the form of each other. The embrace of life as it is and all of its frailty and all of its finitude, all of its sorrows and joys, successes and failures. That's beautiful. This idea of horizontal transcendence. Vertical transcendence is escapism. Right? It's about, you know, let's leave this place behind and get up there and stop worrying about this life in this world. You're not really supposed to be here. There's something escapist and very problematic and demeaning about that idea of vertical transcendence. And for me, this is where a lot of reconstruction can happen. We talk about deconstruction and reconstruction here a lot. For me, this is where a lot of spiritual reconstruction can happen for us. Spiritual reconstruction, I think, is really about learning to tell new stories, better stories, bigger stories than the ones we inherited maybe from our upbringing, from our culture, our family. When we realize that the stories that we were given by our religion, our culture, or our family were too small, too tribal, too contextual to a particular culture, time, and place, you know, we, we deconstruct. That's really what deconstruction is. Realizing that the stories we were given were too small, too tribal, too contextual, and kind of oppressive. All about us and our tribe and why we're the best or whatever. 
and why we've got all the answers. And the God of those stories is too small, right? Too tribal. Reconstruction, therefore, can be understood as simply learning to tell a bigger story, a better story, and a truer story than the one we were given. A truer story, a better story that makes us better people and more honest people who are able to embrace the unknown, face the world with courage as it is, face reality, and to revel in the mystery to revel in, in, in the wondrous and profound mystery that is life and existence and being, and what could be better than that? And I think that's a big part of what it means to be espionage, spiritual, but not religious. And that's my talk this morning. And so every week here, as a part of our time together, we engage in a conversation, a little dialogue. We, it's, it's rarely ever a Q&A, um, but it's also that. So I invite you at this time, um, if you have any thoughts, any questions, any remarks, if anything I said sparks something in you that you want to comment on or ask about, usually we have a pretty good conversation. Some weeks we don't, and it's cool. that's cool too. But uh, as always, I want to open the floor. So if anybody has, if you're joining us online or if you're present, anything they want to raise or ask about, now's the time. Yeah, all right, Marsha. <laughs> you get the. Uh, do you want to? Is it okay if you use the mic so people can hear you online? Okay, I'll just repeat what your question is or comment. Go ahead. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, Marsha's asking if I would just repeat what I meant one more time, um, what I meant by horizontal transcendence as opposed to vertical transcendence. Yeah, horizontal transcendence is really more just about learning to, to find the divine ultimate reality, God, however you want to describe it, as a reality that's here and now and something that affirms life here and now as divine and holy and sacred. Um, often in religions, particularly conservative religion, and by that I mean particularly conservative Christianity. Um, I think Buddhism is actually really good about, and maybe Eastern religions in general, um, are really good about affirming a kind of horizontal transcendence other, rather than Western uh, Christianity. But uh, Western Christianity, conservative Christianity, tends to only, tends to put all the, all the value and transcendence on heaven, right? The whole point of being a Christian is to get saved so that you go to heaven when you die. And the whole point is that this world is fallen and corrupt and evil and something to be done away with. God's going to destroy the world one day after he raptures us all to heaven. You've heard the story before. You're smiling and nodding, right? And there's something really kind of demeaning and kind of nihilistic about this story. This idea that this world is terrible and that we're to leave it behind and that, you know, uh, this world is to be discarded. And as Christians, we should just hide in our church and wait for the rapture and, you know, essentially ignore the world's problems because it's all going to hell in a handbasket anyway. Why should we work for justice? Why should we care about the environment? It's all fallen and corrupt and let's just wait for the rapture. You see the problems with this idea of vertical transcendence. It's all about getting up there and leaving this here below 
behind. I think, and we'll talk more about this next week, um, that the gospel, this, this idea of the incarnation, God becoming human, robing himself, herself, their self in flesh. Whether or not you take that story literally or metaphorically, the idea is simply that this life and this world is holy and good and divine. And, and you know, the name Emmanuel, Christ's other name is Emmanuel means God with us. You know, there's all these, there's these ideas present, not just within Christianity, but in other religions, that this here and now is holy and good and divine. And in the radical embrace of this life and this world, in all of its problems, in all of its brokenness, there's something wonderful about it. There's something life-affirming and beautiful that you can't do if you're invested in dying and going to heaven and leaving this world behind. There, there's, there's a kind of... Um, an opportunity that we have by embracing this life in this world, um, that's, that's just wonderful. And, and that's what horizontal transcendence is about. Again, it's, does that make more sense, partial percentage? So, but that's a really great question. Um, and there's a lot to unpack there. And over the next week, the final installment of this series, we'll get more into, um, into that. But anybody else this morning? Yeah, okay, Leanne and, and then um, Anne, and I'm going to bring the mic to you. Yeah, hi, everyone. Just coming off of that, um, it just made me think about, like, what an ingenious mechanism for the persons in power to frame the Christian faith. Because if the world around you um, is really hard and you're being mistreated and there's injustice and cyclical poverty and oppression, to frame it as, oh, that's just because the world has fallen. And if you believe, then you'll go to heaven and it'll all be okay. What an ingenious way for people in power to take away any responsibility and also in kind of brainwashing disenfranchise the people themselves from thinking in terms of we need a change we need this power structure to change because it doesn't benefit us so it's like using divinity and the cosmos and these huge concepts to cripple people's minds and abilities and will to make this here and now better. So I just think that this way of thinking is very liberating in that respect, because um, I just don't think it's, I think it's really evil that power structures will use this kind of story to justify themselves and justify how things are. Wow. Was that God? Yes. God, God was impressed with it. Wow. <laughs> wow. That, that was is so. That is that Emily Green? No, this is Karen. Karen? Karen from oh, Ka GCC. Karen, yes. Karen, yes. Oh, man. That was so powerful. That was like the solution, the answer to, to like explain 
why Christian nationalism is set up that way to always blame everything on the evil one. You know, so like they, they they say everything that's bad is because of Satan trying to distract you from the ultimate goal, which is being uh, like in the rapture and up into heaven. You know, leave it all behind because the world is so evil and it's it's a Satan trying to make you think you should change anything down here. I mean, this was the most powerful. I mean, I loved your talk, Aaron. It was just stunning. And I realized that I am uh, truly spiritual, <laughs> like following your line of thinking, you know, like last week, like, oh, no, I wouldn't want that label on me. But yes, um, I feel very much we are all connected to the one uh, that gives us life. And that is all life in all life, like in the tree, in the bee, in each other. And to recognize that is what I think Jesus really wanted us to experience, that uh, seeing the value is that we are all so-called God's children, and we should treat each other like that with respect and dignity. And so the answer that this lovely lady just gave to, man, that makes so much sense, you know, like the the Christian nationalist uh, idea of don't change anything because you can't and you, it's not worth it. So we just rob you in the daylight of, of everything, of your dignity, of your money, of everything, like to keep it the way it is. The power structures, God gave me money so I get to rule over you. It was God's will to make me be born into this specific family, uh, be a king or whatnot, or behave like one. And um, yeah, you, you poor person, that's your own fault. And um, if you think you want to change something, it's Satan putting that into your mind anyway so that's that's part of the story and thank you so much both of you oh, you're welcome and thank you for commenting it's <laughs> uh, great thanks thanks Connie. thanks for being here um anybody else this morning yeah Anne. sorry that's Bye. good um i love this idea of horizontal transcendence when i was earlier in my stages of deconstruction I really struggled as an accountant with a very linear brain to try to find a systematic theology. Like that was just like something that I couldn't let go of. Like, how do I understand anything about God if I can't read this book and come up with an understanding of how this story works? And the one theme that I could find through scripture that I still feel like I see is that God always seems to come for us. So in the garden, God came to the garden to spend time with them. He came for Abraham. He, he traveled with the Israelites, which was not the way religion was structured at the time. It was the God was attached to a land. So he traveled with them. He went with them into Babylon. He like Jesus came like he's always coming to us, not us needing to try to get up there to wherever he is. This horror, this vertical, as you're referring to it. But this idea of it being and that that, you know, I think that's very telling in that God is here like all the time like he makes he's he's shown in you know in different stories like he's illustrated it in different ways but i think he's illustrating a fact that is just our reality if we are willing 
to see that in some way. And in whatever way, whatever name we give to it, God, divine, whatever, like there's something more here than just atoms. And we just need to open our eyes to see it. And every now and then he kind of opens our eyes for us and goes, hello, (laughs) here I am. But otherwise, like we need to be looking. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. And I, another helpful way, helpful way to think about horizontal transcendence, um, you sparked the thought in the end, um, is to think of the story, specifically in Christianity, as being about the downward trajectory of God into the world. You know, Paul talks about in Philippians chapter two that even though Jesus was somehow somehow God, he emptied himself. That word, he emptied himself. It's all trans you know vertical transcendence he emptied himself of all majesty and power and beyondness emptied himself of all of that and took the form of a human being and not just a human paul says but the lowliest among us a slave a servant and not just a slave or a servant but he was crucified he took he emptied himself of life itself in the most you know he poured himself out completely into the world. God is poured out completely into the world. That's, that's kind of the underlying message of that story. God goes from this supreme being on high to being located in a man, we're told. I'm not saying this literally. But in a man, Jesus of man. And that is, you know, Jesus is crucified and poured out into bread and wine, right? And we consume that. God is then, we become the body of Christ. God is poured out completely into the world, into us. We are the body of Christ. We are the body of God. We are the resurrected Lord in the world. As we embrace his virtues of love and justice and kindness and embracing this life as he did and emptying ourselves as he did into this life. In a sense, in order to really be a Christian, in order to have faith, according to this rule, this standard, we too must forsake heaven for earth. Hear that? We too must forsake heaven for for earth. Take our eyes off of heaven. Put them squarely on this life and this world. And in that way, we are Christian. We are are disciples of Christ. We we have faith. Christ's love. Take your eyes off of heaven. Forsake heaven for earth. This way, this is our faith. Um, I think that's beautiful. And that's kind of the depth dimension of horizontal transcendence understood through the gospel, which is about, you know, this God who dies, this God who embraces suffering and death and empties himself completely out into this life, this world, and, and invokes up, calls us to follow him in this act. Pick up your cross and follow me. So powerful. Anyway, so uh, I don't, that's more for next week. <laughs> we'll get more into that next week and also look at how other religions um, understand that idea of horizontal transcendence. But yeah, um, did somebody else? I, God to- spoke again. <laughs> Female God. <laughs> uh, I said so powerful. I just love all the explanations you have and how you like uh, make it so lovable, the whole gospel thing. Not, not difficult, but very, very clear. And um, I do have one question that always puzzled me Um, when Jesus is at the cross and he asks, like, Father, forgive him, eh, forgive them. They don't know what they do. That is the moment where I kind of get, wait a minute. I thought is God himself 
let himself be crucified, but then who's Jesus speaking to and asking for forgiveness for what is done to him? That's the part that puzzles me. Can you say something to that? What are your thoughts? Yeah, Thank I mean, you. honestly, like, um, that's, a, that's a really good question. And uh, let me think more about that. Let, I will respond to it better next week. There's a few different ways we can look at that. Um, okay. If somebody else has some insight into that, we can, we can go down that road right now. But um, Karen, I will think I will address that in depth next week after I think about it a little more, get to write something about it. Um, Thank you. Yeah, sure. that's always how I felt, you know, my when I'm overcome with empathy and sadness for how the world treats, um, like, let's say the, the animals in the ocean or how humans treat each other. I'm I have such deep compassion and empathy and I'm like tearful and I all I can feel is like they don't know what they're doing. You know, it's like not blaming, but in a in a sense, like my heart is calling out and saying that sentence in a way It's like. Yeah. forgive them because they don't know what they're doing it's so sad and it's so like oh my god but and, and jesus said this thing but i don't quite understand what that means and how to you know talk to god in a way to feel is this really your plan i mean yes uh you know but how can a whale be treated like how can i hear you and i will okay thank you i'll, I'll address the metaphysics of that question next week but suffice to say for now, Jesus's prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, should I think on the surface at least be, be another way for us to understand the humility of Christ and this, this act again of emptying himself, right? And, and this, again, it's about the profound humility of Christ, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And, and that this is a way of loving and affirming others in the world in a way that is totally sacrificial, total, unconditional love. It's a picture of unconditional love and in a way that we too can live. I'm not saying that Jesus is telling us there, you know, just become a doormat. That's not the point. The point is, though, that there is, there is this idea of, you know, profound humility and unconditional love that is beautiful and that is, you know, um, worth pursuing. Yeah, one more. Uh, I should go ahead. Yeah. Sure. Okay, Marsha just said that her her view on that statement of the Bible is that mankind is flawed and, and not perfect. And uh, well, we'll talk more about that next week. Thanks, Marshall. Um, yeah, Akila, let me just get you the mic. Um, thanks, Anna. It's good to see you. Hi, it's good to be here. Um, yeah, I just wanted to, I guess I was just thinking about this. And I wasn't sure to put it, but um, I think it's also important to talk about the importance of horizontal transcendence, especially when you're thinking about oppressed groups, I'm thinking specifically of Black people in the U.S. and how it was really important to think this world sucks and there's got to be something better on the other side. Um, and that idea of going on to glory or, you know, going and having a new experience um, not based on... I mean, we were talking about chattel slavery, we were talking about like all this stuff. Um, and then, so, and then what I was thinking is for my own understanding is that um, 
like part of that makes sense. But the thing that, so I don't say I'm spiritual. I, sometimes I say I'm spiritual, well, not religious, but usually I just say it's complicated because I like, I don't have a- that's, that's what I say too. Yeah, I'm like, I mean, and the best way I think to check that box is usually just say spiritual, but it's not necessarily um, good in that. I started the Rachel Held Evans book and, you know, she talks about that. And I thought that was really great. But anyway, the point I was making is part of the um, the struggle. And I think this is what you were getting at with the, like the horizontal stuff is that, okay, there was a point where it did make sense to think there is this high, like there's got to be something better. There's got to be this. But then as a person who's a critical thinker and who doesn't like living in a world where it's like, yeah, but this doesn't make sense the way that you're approaching it, that there is this, you know, patriarchal way that this has to exist. Um, It was a large part of like the deconstruction for me, like thinking about these things. And so it's, again, like I said, it's complicated. Anyway, thank you. Yeah, no, thanks, Akila. And I just want to make sure I understand you right, because I think you made a really interesting point there. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I heard you saying that this idea of, you know, getting to heaven and leaving behind the suffering of this world for oppressed and marginalized groups should not be like demeaned in any way. Um, because frankly, for, I mean, you said you were speaking, I think, as well as a, uh, as a person of color for oppressed and marginalized groups. And we certainly find this even in the New Testament for the, you know, Christianity, the gospel was originally for the poor, right? The, the church was originally made up of the poor, the powerless, and their understanding of God's deliverance was that, you know, the powers of this world uh, were, were going to be defeated by the powers of, of good. But there was this idea that even though this world oppresses you and, you know, the powers that be kill you and imprison you, you know, you've got a better future in, in the great beyond. And, you know, uh, you may be poor and downtrodden in, in this life, but in the next life, you will inherit riches and, and you will be taken care of. And you, won't ha- you won't lack. And, and I think that story um, was was meant to be liberating and empowering and hopeful for people that had no hope. And, and I, I think, is, is that what you were also? Yeah, I totally agree with that. And that is what I was saying. And also, I was also sorry about the, um, the thing with Jesus, too, because a, a big thing you'll hear often, or I have heard, I should say, I have heard often is also like, look at how they treated Jesus. This was a perfect man. And look at what happened to him. And are we better than Jesus? No, but we also know that God's love and grace is greater than what we're experiencing. And yes, there will be, I mean, so the the sort of the ascension and all that stuff is like, yes. So there will be something better where we get it. Um, like you said, the great hereafter will be the place where all of the things that have been taken from us have been restored. Yeah, and I just want to be sensitive to that, uh, especially mm-hmm. at okay weekend. I, I if I understand Dr. King's legacy and words correctly, he linked those two ideas, that that the liberation, salvation, and justice of the Lord revealed in Christ was not just for the hereafter, but it was supposed to be here now. And we are to embody that in our political and social lives, in, in, in our communities. Um, now, of course, we emphasize more of that horizontal transcendence here now, because that's where a community like the, us is at, right? Um, but But I think it's important to recognize the witness of the black church in this area, particularly the work of Dr. King, linked those to the vertical and the horizontal. They weren't separate, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Up. Wonderful. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? Um, good start.
All right. Well, great conversation, Peruge. I learned a lot. And um, thank you for being here. Let us conclude our time together, um, as we always do, by saying this benediction together. Let's say this now. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Thanks for being here, everybody. Go in peace.